Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, guys, well, we're going to finish up uh, Matthew chapter 6 today. We have a, a large passage, verses 25 through 34. So if you would, please turn your Bibles there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've we got Bibles in the back. Feel free to stand up, grab one of those. That's our gift to you. And as you turn to Matthew 6, let me review from last Sunday. We finished what turned into a, a three-week study on money and possessions. Uh, Jesus taught us within his Sermon on the Mount how easily money can turn into a master, right? Something that's going to rule over our lives. And we had several key points. Uh, key point number one from last week, we learned that money is a rival God. Money is a rival God. It's not only a challenger, it's not a competitor or an enemy of the one true living God. It is those things, but it is also money is a God. And it's a God, a small g God, because money uh, people put their faith in money. And when people put their faith in money or anything, that's called worship. It's called worship. We also learn, key point number two, that the person who pursues the wrong treasure with the wrong vision... They will most certainly serve the wrong master. If we choose to pursue earthly treasures because we have our eyes on worldly things, well, we can't help but serve the wrong God. A disciple of Jesus cannot serve both God and money. Having a divided loyalty, that is impossible. Um, and we discussed how the American Civil War was an example of that last Sunday. We got to choose sides, don't we? Otherwise, you're going to get shot by both, and you don't want to do that. Key point number three, we, we learn this. The Lord Jesus only demands one thing, just one thing, your life. That's it. He demands your life. Jesus gave his life for yours, which means that your sin debt is paid and your eternal future secure. It also means that God is your heavenly father, and that's where Jesus takes us here today. Today we're going to learn the, the very practical day-to-day -day benefits of, of having God as our master and also as our father. Um, one of the underlying themes that Jesus taught us about money is that our attitude towards money, it's a mark of our own spiritual maturity. As earthly creatures, we, we naturally tend to worry about earthly things. However, as blood-bought adopted children, we also have a new heart. We also have a renewed mind, and this means that our priorities, they're constantly in flux. Um, and they're, it's between what we can see and what we can't see. And make no doubt about it, guys, money is always a test of the things that we can see. One out of every ten verses in the New Testament is on money. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus taught 
deal with money. There are 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 on faith, and over 2,000 on money. Why so many on money? Well, I think because we tend to live by sight rather than faith. We need every single one of those verses to be reminded of who our Heavenly Father is. If we're not reminded of those things, what happens? We tend to worry, don't we? So Jesus, out of His grace, He gives us the cure to worry today. All in favor of the cure, say aye. Aye. All right, so what is that cure? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand now for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. The Scripture verses are on the screen. If you would, please uh, read out loud with me, starting at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. And yet, I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat? And what will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Dear friends, these are the very words from the authoritative, the inerrant, the inspired, and the infallible word of Almighty God. Please pray with me. Father, the psalmist writes, when I am filled with cares, your comfort brings me joy. Father in heaven, many of us come today with a lot of cares on our mind. We've got things in the back of our mind, and we just can't help but to worry. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to my finances? What about the kids? What about my health? What about my retirement? And Lord God, today is a wonderful passage of care and truth, and we pray, Lord God, that, that what you teach us today brings us your comfort, because your comfort brings us joy. And Lord, we're here to seek after that joy. We're here to learn your truth and to apply all of this to our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a seat. I'm going to back up one verse here and get us started. 
from last week. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In verse 25, therefore, therefore. So in other words, God is saying, because God is your master, because God is your master, I tell you, don't worry. Don't worry about your life or what you're, what you're going to eat, what you drink, about your body, what you're going to wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? So why does Jesus tell us not to worry about our lives? I mean, it's a command. He commands us, don't worry. Why does he do that? Well, he knows that we all do at some level. We all worry. No one is immune from worry. And yet Jesus commands us not to worry. So the picture here, right from the very start, he says, don't be concerned about this. Don't be anxious about this. In other words, Jesus is saying, stop it. Just stop it. He says, don't worry about your life. Worry is the theme of this whole passage. It occurs six times in this passage. And it's this idea of stopping what you've been doing all of your life. So in other words, we are to stop worrying and never start again. Easier said than done, I know. Now, before we learn what Jesus is saying here, let's discuss what he's not saying. It's not saying that you should quit your job so you don't have to worry about it. He's not saying that you shouldn't plan um, because we know in other parts of Scripture, he's very specific or Scripture is very specific about working hard, about caring for your family. So what is Jesus saying here in verse 25? He says, don't worry about your life what you're going to eat, what you will drink. Don't worry about your body and what you're going to put on it, what you're going to wear. So Jesus mentions the most basic necessities of life. Food, water, clothing. And next he he asks a question. He says, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, before we jump in and say yes to this question, we need to figure out what Jesus means by that word life. Uh, It's a big word here. It's suke in the Greek, and it's a comprehensive term for your life. The picture here is your physical, your emotional, and your spiritual well-being. Now, we spend a lot of time worrying about our physical bodies, don't we? Especially as we get older. We spend a lot of time looking in the mirror, making sure that our bodies are well. We want to be presentable to others. And, that, uh, and in doing so, we, we decorate our bodies, don't we? We put clothes on them. We exercise our bodies to protect them and, um, from disease and pain. But here's the thing. Our bodies, in and of themselves, they're not the source of anything. We are creatures, whether we like it or not. And the older that we get, the more our bodies fall apart. And this falling apart is a direct result from the fall from Adam and Eve. So theologically, Jesus, he's teaching a very important lesson here. It's called the doctrine of providence. Providence means that that God can see beforehand. 
He can see in advance. But it also means the provision for the future. So just as Abraham learned this firsthand when he trusted God with his only son, remember this? He was uh, Abraham getting ready to sacrifice his own son. He trusted God in that, his son Isaac. And by the way, that, that whole narrative points to God the Father sacrificing Christ. So just in the nick of, nick of time, God stops Abraham in his tracks. And guess what? God provides an animal for the sacrifice. So Abraham, being so grateful, he names that place Jehovah-Jireh, meaning the Lord. It's the Lord who's going to provide. And Abraham joined the Lord in that. Jesus continues here in verse 26. He says, consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow, they don't reap, and they don't gather into barns. So Jesus moves into an object lesson now. Remember, Jesus, he's preaching outside. He's on this large hill or this mountain. He's preaching to his disciples. That's why this whole thing is called the Sermon on the Mount. And he probably sees some birds and he points to them. So he says, consider the birds of the sky. So in other words, hey, guys, look directly at those birds. I want you to gaze upon them. Watch them closely. In other words, look at what is staring you right in the face. These birds, they don't have a job. I mean, when was the last time you saw a bird plowing a field? Right? When was the last time you saw a raven using fertilizer and doing some weeding on the weekends? Birds only overeat when we stick them in cages. And they're not going to hoard worms either. Now, other animals, they, they do store nuts and uh, seeds for the winter, but that's just out of instinct. That is not out of fear. That is not out of worry. But look what Jesus says next. He says, look at the birds, study the birds, gaze upon the the birds, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. They don't do any of this stuff, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now, isn't that fascinating? Very, very interesting statement. I would say that this statement is profound. God the Father, God is our Heavenly Father. He is not a Heavenly Father to the birds. Sorry to break it to you, birds are not going to heaven. Sorry. But the point is so good, isn't it? God is our Heavenly Father. And if our Heavenly Father takes this kind of care of the birds, how much more for you? That's fascinating. The psalmist writes this. He says, he, so that's God, God gives food to the wild animals and he feeds the young ravens when they cry. So once again, if God takes care of these beady-eyed little birds... How much more will he take care of you? You, who is made in God's image and who has become his child by faith alone in Christ alone. Guys, God the Father will not take better care of the birds than, and ignore his own kids. He's not going to do that. He's never done that. And he's not going to start now. 
So verse 26, Jesus asks a rhetorical question here. He says, aren't you worth more than they? So in other words, have you forgotten who your heavenly father is? Isn't it amazing how quickly we forget God's promises? And I think that's precisely why God wrote them down in his book for us to read over and over and over again. The Apostle Paul, he asked the same kind of question in in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, since he, so that's God the Father, since he did not spare even his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Don't forget who your heavenly Father is. He's already given you his best, right? Jesus continues here in verse 27. Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? Now, if you've got the New King James Version, your your translation says this. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? The reason for this translation is that the Greek term for stature, it can either be translated as height or length. And the way that you have to figure that out is within the context of the true meaning. So it's common sense here that Jesus is not talking about height. So in other words, Jesus is asking us, can any of you live a bit longer by worrying about it? It doesn't make any sense to translate that Greek word in in the height. I mean, can you imagine someone worrying about adding 18 inches to his height? I mean, I'm four feet tall and I don't do that. (laughs) So Jesus' second illustration has to do with life expectancy, right? That brings us to key point number one. We worry more about death than any other reality we face. We worry more about death than any other reality we face. Here's a newsflash for you. You're going to die. You heard it here first. (laughs) Right? And because of this reality, our culture is completely obsessed with trying to lengthen our lives. Going to the grocery store, how many magazines at the checkout center, talking about exercise and diets and supplements and vitamins and minerals and blah, 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 right? (laughs) And, And why, oh why, so many Christians want to stay here longer than planned is beyond me. (laughs) King Solomon writes this, Ecclesiastes 3.1, he says, For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. The the psalmist writes in Psalm 39.4, Lord, remind me of how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered and how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. And at best, each of us, it's but a breath. Brings us to key point number two. You worry yourself to death, not to life. You worry yourself to death, not to life. Guys, our lives, every breath, 
is in the hands of our Father. And because God is the Father, He's the one that is completely in control of these things, that should give us great comfort. That should give us great peace and joy. That shouldn't raise our anxiety. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Even in death, death has lost its power and sting. So we don't need to fear death. Why? Because God is sovereign. He has predetermined our days. We had no say when we were born. We had no say in who our parents are. And we will have no say when we die. Unless, of course, we commit suicide. And that's a different sermon for another day. The problem with death is that we don't know the date. And, and worrying about the date doesn't do us any good. Now, I've heard people say, oh, come on, man. I, you know, I'm, I'm just a worrier. It's what I do. It's who I am. No, you're not. You're not a worrier. You're a Christian. You're God's child. And he didn't create you to be some kind of worry wart. It pains your Heavenly Father when He sees you so stressed out about something so minor. Or even the big things, right? I mean, take a moment just to look. Think about your rearview mirror of life. Think about the last situation to where you were, you were wound up, man. You were worried and worried and you weren't getting any sleep and your health started to, to, to impact you a little bit. What was that? And now think how it was resolved. Did you make a bigger deal out of it than it was? Many, many times we do. And guys, look, even if it's a tragedy, can you see God's hand upon your life in the tragedy? You know, this concept of worry hit home with me about 15 years ago. Amy and I babysat a a newborn baby, and her name was Caitlin. And I remember holding that sweet little baby in my arms. She was so cute, so tiny. Uh, she was sound asleep. Caitlin didn't have a care in the world. She wasn't worried about not getting fed later. She wasn't concerned about the onesie she was wearing. She wasn't concerned about who was going to change her diaper next. No, see, she was, she was completely safe in my arms. Nothing, nothing bad was going to happen to her. And then it crossed my mind as I'm holding this little girl, like, wow, this is how our Heavenly Father looks at us. And that's the primary idea of this text today. He's got us. Doesn't matter how old we are, He's got us right where He wants us. So let's not forget who your Heavenly Father is. Now, there is a second reason that Jesus commands us not to worry. And that's key point number three. Worry is a sin that needs to be confessed. Worry is a sin that needs to be confessed. Worry is the sin of not trusting God's promises. We worry because we believe the lie, and it is a lie, that we have to fix our problems ourselves. We got to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. 
English, the English term worry, it's, it's interesting because it comes from an old German word meaning to strangle. It means to choke. Isn't that what worry does in our lives? Worry not only strangles, uh, strangles us, it, and it feels like we can't breathe. So there is a very real physical aspect related to our emotions here. Worry and stress and anxiety... Uh, these are major problems related to our physical health. So emotional problems, they equal physical problems. And, you know, many of us ignore, maybe we deny this, this uh, medical fact. We may even dignify our worry. Well, Dustin, I'm not really worried. I just got some concerns. Uh, I'm just, I'm a little apprehensive about this or that, Right? We may even justify our worry by quoting some scripture. You know, Dustin, this is my cross to bear. <laughs> okay, but the results are still the same, aren't they? Sleepless nights and increased physical pain. Jesus continues, he says, why do you worry about clothes? Observe, the, uh, observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor and they don't spin thread. So Jesus poses a second illustration here regarding clothes. Once again, let's remember Jesus' original audience out in the, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount here. We're outside. Um, in the first century, they probably only had one set of clothes, maybe two sets. So we should probably think about this the next time we walk into our walk-in closet. And look at all of our stuff and go, hey, I got nothing to wear. <laughs> so just as Jesus wants us to slow down and watch how our Heavenly Father feeds the birds, he also points out he wants us to observe. He wants to study the wildflowers. So once again, Jesus probably, he's pointing to some flowers there on the hill. So in other words, let the flowers preach to you. Let the sparrows sing to you of God's sovereignty. Jesus specifically says, observe. Watch how they grow. They don't labor. They don't spin thread. So in other words, they don't have a J-O-B. They don't work for a living, right? They're not making clothes for themselves. These flowers, this is amazing. They make no effort to grow. They just do. They just do. They certainly didn't design themselves or color themselves. Verse 29, and he says, Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. Uh-oh, Solomon. Jesus pulling out the big guns now. You talk about an example. There's a, a Jewish historian named Josephus, and he writes this about King Solomon. He says, there was great fame all around the neighboring countries, which proclaimed the virtue and the wisdom of Solomon. All the kings everywhere, they desired to see him because his stories were incredible. These other kings, they demonstrated their respect for Solomon by sending him gifts. So these kings sent him gold and silver and lots of clothes, uh, purple garments there, spices, horses, chariots. All these gifts were known by the kings for their strength or their beauty. 
So he then added these horses to all of his stables. He had 20,000 horses in all. These horses were also so strong and they could run so swiftly that there was no others in comparison. None were finer, none were swifter. The riders were also a further ornament to Solomon. Notice that word there. These riders were young and they were strong and they were beautiful warriors. They were distinguished for their size. They were far taller than most men. And they had the very, very long heads of hair hanging down, and they were clothed in garments of Tyrrhenian purple. So think of their clothes. This is like Armani suits. These guys are dressed to the nines, all right? And I love this. They also had gold dust sprinkled in their hair so that their heads sparkled with the reflection of the sunbeams as they were walking through the crowds. Now watch this. The king himself, he rode upon a chariot in the middle of these men who were still in their armor. So you've got all these young warriors, gold sparkling in their hair, and they're, they're, they're surrounding Solomon. And Solomon is dressed to the nines, and they're parading through the streets. This is the kind of lavishness that Solomon lived in. And Jesus says, despite the flowers in activity, not even Solomon, right? Israel's most extravagant king can compete with the beauty of a wildflower. Verse 30, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here to today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You have little faith. Furnace, that, that word furnace there, that's better translated as oven. Um, this type of oven was made of clay. It was used for baking bread. So to bake bread, a woman would build a fire inside the oven as well as underneath it. The fuel for the oven was dried grass and these wildflowers. So Jesus' point here is that once the flowers... Once they lose their beauty, this temporary beauty, beauty, the flower itself had little use. So what did they do? They just threw it in the oven. They used it for fuel. Isn't it amazing that we can say here, we can say that we believe that God redeemed us. He saved us from our sins. He has promised us eternal life with him. And yet... We don't trust him to supply our daily needs. Isn't that amazing? Verse 30, he says, you, you of little faith. What does Jesus mean by little faith here? He doesn't say no faith. It's not the absence of faith. It's the scarcity of faith that he's talking about. Because we often don't have sufficient faith to get us past the the trial that's causing us to worry. So we learn that, that worry is, is indeed a sin, and it's not a trivial sin either. Why is that? Because this is what worry does. Worry strikes a blow at both God's love and his provisional care for us. When God's children worry, what we're doing is we're telling God that we don't trust him, regardless of what we say. Now, we would never say that aloud, would we? 
But see, our worry, our behavior, our anxiety, it, it judges us. It, it proves that we are guilty. Worry shows that our circumstances master us. So notice that word master from last week. He says, you of little faith. Let's define faith here. A real simple definition of faith is a constant reliance upon God. It's a constant reliance upon God. So if we have little faith, how do we build it? How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? How do we build this spiritual muscle in our lives? Well, we do that one day at a time. We do that by reading the Word of God, by the Spirit of God on a consistent basis. It's a funny thing what happens when we're not in the Word of God, when we're not connected to um, other believers or we start skipping church and Bible studies and we start distancing ourselves. Something happens to us. When we're not reading, when we're not listening, when we're not watching God's Word in some form or fashion every day, there is a vacuum that happens in our life. And guess what? The world, even the demonic, rush in to fill that void. And what are they going to fill it with? Lies, fear, doubt, worry, you name it. And then worry, what's worry do? Worry pushes us away from the Lord. Because I've got I to figure this out. I've got to fix this today. Did you know that it takes the same amount of time to worry about something as it does to pray on it? It takes the same amount of time just to shift in our focus, isn't it? Verse 31, Jesus says, so don't worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? You know, these questions are specific questions. When we get all jammed up in a financial crisis, we start worrying about all these things. And worrying about these things, it proves that we're spending too much time in the world. How so? Because Jesus says this. He says we're acting just like the world in verse 32. He says the Gentiles, so the unbelievers, they eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. To worry about material things is to live just like the world. We think to ourselves, you know, I don't want to live like the world. I don't want to do this anymore. So how do I, how do I stop? How do I break free? Jesus provides the answer in verse 33. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You do that and all these things will be provided for you. Guys, let me tell you, this is... This is one of the most powerful, powerful verses in all of Scripture. Highlight it, write it down, tattoo it on your body somewhere. It's that good. This verse will transform your life. That is, if, if we choose to believe it. So let's take a look. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first. There's a striving involved here. There's a, a, a building faith includes building spiritual muscle, doesn't it? It takes work, it takes meditation, it, it takes uh, a willingness to change. Notice the importance here first. 
Everything else is a distant second. He continues, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, that's a big topic. Let's just say this for today, that the kingdom of God is, is your life with God. It's your relationship with God. So you seek him first above everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we are to seek, we are to strive and learn and really apply God's rightness to our lives. We are to apply God's moral standards to our lives. Not what the world says, not what we think. It only matters what God says. So we, are, we apply his moral standards to our lives no matter the cost. And then look at the promise. This is amazing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All of these things will be provided for you. What things? Well, the things that we tend to worry about. The things that are, are heavy on our minds this morning. I, I love how he says it's going to be provided. Some translations say added, given. God is giving these things to you. So key point number four. We are not to strive for the things. We are to strive for God's kingdom. We are not to strive for the things. We are to strive for the kingdom. So in other words, we tend to worry because we seek first the wrong things in this world. Our focus is on us. We need to get our eyes off ourselves. We need to lift our head up and see what God's doing around us. And when we seek first the wrong things, man, we're never going to stumble upon the right things. So what does it look like to seek first after God on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, Jesus is not saying here we're to seek the kingdom first and then food second and clothes third and etc. He's not talking about chronological order here. Instead, he's talking about our priorities. He's talking about our attitude on life in general. So think about your heart. Think about your motives. Why do you do the things that you do? If anyone seeks God and his kingdom first, God promises to meet your needs. He promises this, guys. Here's the thing. But it may not be in this life. May not be in this life. Often it is. And then verse 34, he says, Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has a, enough trouble of its own. You know, when we worry about tomorrow, we tend to overextend ourselves with a capacity we do not have. Today has a list of troubles. Got a list. So why do we look ahead and grab some of those troubles that are prepared for tomorrow and add them to our list today? Why do we do that? Let me ask you, you ever worry about what may or may not happen yesterday? You ever do that? Well, yesterday's gone and done. Jesus says we have enough on our plate today without worrying about tomorrow. One of the translations read, reads this, and this is so good. Sufficient for the day is the evil of it. 
Sufficient for the day is the evil of it. Worrying doesn't enable you to escape your problems. Worry does make you unfit to cope with the reality of your problems, though. If you add today's troubles to tomorrow's troubles, you do give yourself an impossible burden. So key point number five, do not borrow tomorrow's trouble. Do not borrow tomorrow's trouble. So a couple thoughts. Don't live in the future. Don't go there. Live now. Be grateful now. Spend time with your family now. Spend time with your children, your grandchildren today. Enjoy the the life God has given you today. Lastly, key point number six. Stop worrying and start worshiping. Stop worrying and start worshiping. You just can't stop worrying. There's going to be a void there. So you have to do something else with that time. Y'all with me? Does that make sense? You got to do something else. So start worshiping. You get all sideways on some stuff, guys, and you don't know what to do, flip on some worship music. Start singing praises to God. Do not let that just bask in your mind. I need to do this. I need to do that. Choose to do something different. Worship does change everything. It changes our attitude. It changes our health. It changes our relationships. I once read that it takes 60 trillion fog droplets to cover seven city blocks. Now, 60 trillion droplets, that's seven city blocks worth of fog. That can close down a major airport, part of a city. And yet, if you shrunk those 60 trillion fog droplets down, you would only have a half a glass of water. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it makes a really good illustration. Man, that is such a good picture of what worry is all about. We got this little glass of water. And we let that build up and it just starts getting bigger. The fog gets thicker, denser. We wander around bumping into things. Amazing, isn't it? How's it going to work out? What am I going to do? And if you, don't, if you don't choose to stop worrying, if you don't choose to worship, once again, you can't sleep, you've got ulcers. So, dear friends, think about this. Stop worrying, start worshiping, and watch what happens. I double-dog dare you to take Matthew 6, seriously this week, to seek first the kingdom of God, and watch what happens. Father in heaven, what an amazing text. We are so grateful that you take the time to teach us your truth because you do care for your children and you don't want your children to be worry warts. 
The Apostle Peter said, give all your worries and your cares to God. Why? Because he cares about you. So Lord, I pray that we do that today. I pray that we start a new habit this week, that we really would take Matthew 6, to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and believe that and trust you for all of these things that are in the back of our minds today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.